This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hey there, thank you so much for joining me for this episode. My name is Tim Hamrich, and I get to invite you into a story every week of the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors shaping the future of agriculture. I'll give you a little caveat right now is the 4th of July weekend, and my neighbors are already setting off fireworks. So if you hear some explosions in the background, I assure you everything is okay. And uh, happy 4th of July to those of you listening from the U.S. In 213 episodes, I don't think I can think of a single company that brings together quite as many interesting trends in agriculture as the company I'm going to share with you here today. I'll just rattle off a few fascinating aspects that will be touched on this episode. You're not going to believe this. A new crop, a new feed, cover crops, genetic engineering, a low-carbon intensity feedstock, and a new revenue source for farmers. And that's just the beginning. All of those are components of Covercress. And we have CEO Jerry Steiner on the show to talk about the truly fascinating work they're doing over there at Covercress. And as if that weren't enough, I'm joined again by my friends over at Fulcrum Global Capital, who are investors in Covercress. I introduced you to them back in episode 208 when I featured another one of their portfolio companies, PNP Optica. It's a real treat to partner with them on some of these episodes and get both the investor perspective as well as the startup perspective on these stories. So be sure to check out episode 208 if you haven't already, where I introduce you to Fulcrum. But just as a little refresher, started by three accomplished investors who used to be responsible for the state of Kansas venture investment arm, Fulcrum Global Capital was formed to invest in startups looking to disrupt global agriculture, ag tech, or animal health. I really enjoy talking to these guys, and I'm happy to have all three venture partners back on today's show. They're going to help me introduce Covercrest here from their perspective, and here's venture partner and general counsel John Perriam on how they first connected with the company. Covercrest, or when we first made the investment, it was known as Arvagenics, but it's rebranded itself as Covercrest, came to us sort of in a, a pseudo-traditional way through a an investor conference. Jerry, the CEO, was there networking himself. He found my cell phone, and I got a text out of the blue Hey, my name's Jerry Steiner. Uh, can I meet and tell you about my company? And so we, the next morning at 7.30 before it started, I, I met him for coffee and, and he sort of told us what he was doing. It's sort of an interesting deal because what Covercrest is doing is, is interesting. They are actually developing a completely new crop for the Midwestern farmer. It doesn't happen very often. And they've got an additional hook in that they're creating a crop which isn't going to compete with current crops that the Midwestern farmer is currently producing. It's actually a winter cover crop with a harvestable oil seed on the back end. So the, the idea from Covercress's perspective is we're going to create this new revenue source for the Midwestern farmer. It's going to go in on the corn soy rotation and you're going to get the traditional cover crop benefits of which there are numerous, but you're going to get increased profitability, which is a completely novel thing from the farmer's perspective on a per acre basis. 
Another interesting element about it was they were raising at the time a, a largely internal round from their current investors, but they were looking to carve off a small portion for an external investor, a little bit to refresh the investor pool for future rounds. So we found ourselves almost through just sheer luck in a position of being able to evaluate this company, which had made significant progress. I love hearing the stories of how entrepreneurs first get connected with investors. But obviously, Jerry had a very compelling pitch of bringing a new cover crop to farmers that was going to actually make them money and produce a marketable product on the other end. For venture partner and CFO Kevin Lockett, it was also the team that got him excited about Covercress. One thing that I would add that also attracted us to this deal was not only the technology that they had, but really the team. If you take a look at the Covercrest team, their top six to eight leaders that are running this company all have incredible pedigrees, 15 plus years each in terms of large corporate experience like Monsanto. Jerry comes out of Monsanto, but that team that they have that's in place as well as their location. They're, they're very closely connected with Danforth Plant Center, where a lot of incredible technologies are coming out of in terms of a plant science perspective. Those were also some factors that really were intriguing to us as well. Definitely a lot of reasons to be excited about both the idea and the team behind Covercrest. But for Fulcrum Managing Partner Dwayne Cantrell, it gets back to the farmer customer and more specifically, a rare chance for a company to actually improve their farm economics. From my perspective, the, the interest was this changes the, the economic dynamic to the farmer. You go from a cost to the farmer if you choose to a current or existing cover crop to suddenly you have profitability of the farmer. So the ability to actually create new income for the farmer in a world where there's a lot of pressure on incomes in the ag sector, I think was really important. And that there are multiple pathways, as John talked about, to products. So you have an oil that comes from that can be used from a cooking perspective because the high viscosity levels, but also could also be a feeder stock for bio-based fuels, whether the aviation or diesel. And there is a seed that once it's crushed, that the meal itself is a high protein meal for feed additive. So there are multiple pathways of product lines there that also I think is intriguing from my perspective that caused at least my interest to be, in addition to what everything's been said by Kevin and John, I think those are things that, that intrigue me about Covercrest. Thank you very much to John, Kevin, and Dwayne for providing this investor perspective. Time now to let you hear from this innovative company. Jerry Steiner is the CEO of Covercrest, and I'm going to drop you right into the conversation here where he describes how he became involved with the company after retiring from a very successful career as an executive at Monsanto. Well, I joined in January of 2015 because I had just retired from Monsanto after 30 years about a year before that. And a friend of mine who I used to work with at Monsanto was involved in venture capital. And I put a little bit of money in and they were looking for more ag experience to put on their investment committee. And I said, sure, this is really interesting. Sitting and listening to companies come and pitch was a fascinating kind of experience for me. And this was one of the companies that came through and ultimately they were looking for a CEO. So I said I would do it in the interim as they were getting going. That, that's about six years ago, so uh, five years ago. So <laughs> I'm still here. And it's been a fabulous and fun experience. 
the idea for this company itself actually goes back to some work that USDA in Peoria had done starting in the 2007-8 kind of time frame when commodity prices were really shooting up just at the, the early days of the renewable fuels business getting started. And they were looking for new feedstocks that would be able to feed renewable fuels and provide some diversity to farmers, but not compete with the corn, soybeans that were also being produced. So they were looking at a number of winter kind of crops that you could plant following harvest and harvest and still plant a summer crop like soybeans. And they evaluated a number of things. And at that time, Pennycress looked to be the most promising, largely because of its rapid maturity cycle. That led to uh, you know numerous people trying this and ultimately a couple of other people formed this idea around putting a real science effort and a breeding program around it. And that was kind of the start of our company. And you know, since then we've done many things to because the whole era of genome editing came in and allowed us to not only breed the crop, but really improve the quality of the grain and therefore its value. Hmm. And is the business model to sell the seed of the of this new crop? Is the crop still called Pennycress or is it called Covercress? So we have built this business off of, I'll call it the chassis of the native plant Pennycress. But because we have used genome editing to improve the quality, both the oil and the meal, it's a little different crop when we're done. And that's what we call Covercress, which is our version of Pennycress. Instead, you know, it has half the normal fiber level, and therefore the grain is much better. The grain ends up being yellow instead of the, the native black grain that you see coming out of Pennycrests. And of course, we're, we're looking for high-performing lines. So Covercrest for us is, the, is this improved both quality and agronomic version of Pennycrest. And your business is to sell the seed to farmers to plant this? Yeah, our, our business plan is based on having a, really a partnership on both ends, one end with the farmer and another end with the end user. On the farmer end, we are really looking at a model where we will provide seed to the farmer. It makes it a low input entry for them to go ahead and plant that in the fall. So their part would be planting it, their part would be fertilizing it and harvesting it. And then we will get our revenue when that grain is delivered. We want a partnership on the other end. And you know this is an oil seed, so we need to go to a place where we can crush it and remove the oil. We want to have a partnership with an existing processor that will be using some of their assets in the off-season to effectively crush this crop and deliver the oil and the meal to their customers. Mm -hmm. And at what stage is the business in now? Do you have farmers out there growing Covercress? We're still in a research phase. We are really focused on getting a product that is well-tested before we release it to the marketplace. And not only includes the farmer and the agronomy of well-tested, but it includes the use of the product, the oil and the meal being well-tested in its particular uses. So we're getting there. You know, we, we started this in the first year of growing this crop. We Essentially, the big first year was the spring of 2015. We had our first harvest. So we're a number of years into it now. We are can see the other end of the tunnel here, and we, we are planning on having our first commercial planting in the fall of 2021. Okay. Yeah. Coming up then now. And that'll be a focused planting. You know, that, that first planting 
because we're already producing the foundation seed for that business. So, so we have an idea of how many acres it will be. You know, we're, we're not targeting a lot of land, probably about 5,000 acres. We think, you know, most likely this will be in that south central part of Illinois where we get started. And we're going to work with farmers that we're already, you know, working to recruit. So these will be farmers that get a chance to see one or two crops in a research sense get grown before they grow it. So this first crop for us is about getting started. It's about refining everything and it's about getting it right. You know, we know in this kind of business, you need to get that first year right. It's not like software where you can kind of have customers fix the bugs for you. We're, we're not looking at it that way. We want to get it right before we plant that first crop. Sure. And you said it's essentially what it is, is gene edited pennycress. Some people might hear that and think, oh, wow, so this is a, G- a GMO cover crop. Can you explain maybe the difference? Yeah. So this is both bread. So it's a little bit of old and a little bit of new here. You know, we, if you think about how all of our crops, corn, soybeans, wheat, everything, canola was created, you have to start with something that is in nature. Our start in nature here is is pennycress and it has evolved over, you know, many, many years. And we then have used classic breeding and selection, getting thousands of plots out there and finding the most robust parents, crossing them, creating hundreds of crosses per plant, evaluating them, picking the best, and then continue to repeat that process. And that's the breeding side of the foundation. We've complemented that with genome editing. We're not introducing new genes into the plant as you do, for example, when you make a a GM crop. We're working with the genes that are already there and perhaps changing a few letters of the code to improve the quality. And uh, we've got three specific changes that we have made that improve both the oil and the meal quality that are in our first generation. And we're looking at more of them to continue to improve both the agronomy and the quality of the grain that comes out. So in the U.S., this is not considered a GMO because it does not contain any genes that aren't native to pennycress. Right. And if I recall correctly, places like Europe are still treating gene editing the same as genetic modification. Is that right? Right. And Europe pretty much is alone in that. I mean, most of the rest of the world is going down the path where this is really a very precise, advanced breeding methodology because there are no new genes that are introduced. And And I hope Europe comes to that conclusion ultimately, too, because otherwise, they're going to make it so much more difficult for these innovations to come into the marketplace. And this is really a phenomenal innovation. You know, think of our case right here. We're able to take something which is a weed today and to turn it into something that can be the first real cover crop for the Midwest that you get paid to grow rather than you pay to grow. Yeah. Can you walk us through maybe some of the more nuanced aspects of the of the value proposition here? Or is it just simply like, hey, how about getting paid for something rather than just covering your soil? Well, like most of real life, there are nuances that matter. So, yeah. <laughs> so first of all, you know, this, this works in a specific geography where this plant, this native plant will grow. I'm here sitting here in St. Louis, you know, from here to Alaska. So it would include North Dakota. The agronomic system probably doesn't work nearly as well in a place like North Dakota. We work well where there's a good amount of sunlight and energy to get established after that normal, in our case, corn crop is harvested. So we're typically planting in the second half of September. And all we want to do is get that rosette established in the fall, get it to, you know, the size of a 50 cent piece is probably all we really need to do in the fall. This plant then takes off, you know, with that early 
longer days starting really in February and March and really grows very rapidly during the, during the month of April and early May. And we want to then get out of that field. Today, we're getting out toward the end of May. We're with our breeding lines. We're going to get out toward the middle of May here in just a number of years. That, and then uh, enable someone to come back and plant a full season soybean crop by that, you know, the same day they harvest the cover crest. So that system fits well in the southern half of the Midwest. And that's where we're really aiming at moving from a corn soybean rotation to a corn cover crust soybean rotation where we're getting three crops in two years. If we go further north, you know, our crop matures just a little bit later, just like everything else as you go from south to north. And therefore that soybean planting time gets a little too late for a full season soybean crop. And that's why we're focused really south of I-80 and I'd say north of I-64. That's kind of the zone where we fit best with what we're trying to do. There are others, like the University of Minnesota, that is aiming to make it fit more different kinds of rotations further, further north. You know, we're focusing on what we think is the biggest opportunity in the southern half of the Midwest in getting a cover crop that pays. And can this be harvested with, with existing equipment? Do they just use their combine in the spring to harvest this stuff? Yeah, we, you know, we've had farmers grow good-sized fields of this stuff over the last number of years while we've been working with this, and they all harvest with just their standard soybean header, normal combine, a typical small seed kind of setting. A draper header works a little better than an auger because it has it's just a little bit cleaner at the head, but normal combine. And that's actually one of the things, the principles of this whole idea of what we're trying to do. We're trying to use land the farmer already owns or operates, just use it in the time of year when they're not trying to use it. Yeah. And we want to use have the farmer use equipment whether it's planting or harvesting, that they, uh, they already have. And we want to partner with people who already have existing grain handling and crushing assets for other oil seeds and, and fit through them. So it's kind of taking existing assets and just getting more out of them. Hmm. Once it's harvested, is there much residue left onto the field? And is the idea that farmers would just plant right back into that residue? Yeah. Matter of fact, you know, the first time I was out in the field with a farmer looking at this, I wanted them to notice the crop. And what they noticed was the soil tilth and said, this is a beautiful environment to no-till soybeans into. So when you harvest this, it's a, it's a little like soybeans that it drops all of its leaves. So it's a stem with pods on it. And if you use a spreader at the back of the combine, which most guys do, that stuff gets distributed. And they're just, you know, pulling that no-till soybean planter in right behind the combine. What about the seed? What does Covercrest oil go for? Yeah, so the uh, Covercrest plant is, you know, in that 30 to 32% oil, and the remaining part of it is a high protein uh, meal. So, in a way, the oil itself looks a lot like canola oil when after we've improved it, and the meal looks a lot like canola meal. And that makes a lot of sense. This is a cousin of canola. The oil has various uses, but I'll talk about one that I think is perhaps the most interesting. Because of the fact that this is grown in the off season over winter, and because the plant is then able to scavenge the nitrogen that is left over after that corn crop for at least a portion of its needs, not all of its needs, it ends up having a very low carbon intensity score. That means that that feedstock that oil there is a very attractive oil for people who are aiming to make renewable diesel or renewable jet fuel or biodiesel aimed at these low carbon fuel standard markets like the state of California. So the only way to make a low carbon intensity renewable diesel is to start with a low carbon intensity feedstock 
So used cooking oil is an excellent example of it, and it's a, it's a fabulous product. Distiller's corn oil is another one that works well in this marketplace, as is some, some animal fats. But there's only so much of those volumes because their volumes are determined by the other use. You know, used cooking oil is determined by how many French fries effectively we're making. For, the, for companies to scale their offering of renewable diesel or renewable jet fuel, they need a feedstock that is, has low carbon intensity and can scale. And that's what we offer. And that's what makes this, I think, really, really an interesting crop for the Midwest. I think the other piece of what makes that interesting is that we're participating in a, in a solution to our changing climate by growing a crop when you're not normally growing a crop over winter. We're also taking more carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it into the soil. So we're working on both ends in really helping fight some of the challenges that are, that are coming with our changing climate. Okay. And I, and I do want to come back to the low carbon density feedstock, because I think this is a really, really important point. So other oils, even though they are plant-based oils, because they are primary crops, would they not be considered low carbon density feedstocks? Yeah, there's a complex calculation that goes in to figure out your carbon intensity. And one of those things is your land use. So if you're a primary crop during the summer, you get charged with land use. And there's a whole school of thought on on how you charge things with, with land use. Therefore, things that are growing during the summer, like soybeans, will get a land use charge. But they fix their own nitrogen, so they have that advantage. So all of those things get put into play. It's the reason why things like you know, beef tallow or used cooking oil or even distiller's corn oil have very attractive profiles because their first use gets assigned the carbon intensity, and this is a second use of something that's always good. Well, we're a primary, we're a primary use that we're scalable, but we're a second use of the land. So, you know, in order to get a low carbon intensity, you, you have to have some natural efficiencies, like one of ours is scavenging nitrogen after corn, but you need to be a, a second use of something in general. You know, that's where the synergy comes from. Yeah, one balance I think that, that you all probably have to strike is if a farmer's growing a cover crop, it's, it's usually because they want to retain those nutrients. But in harvesting a cover crop, you actually are taking some of those nutrients off. And so that return on investment there has to be balanced of, okay, how much of the nutrients am I removing and what am I getting for that? Right. No, that's, that's exactly right. Whenever you're harvesting something, you are, you are taking something out of the field. But you know, I can show you the math works. We're, about a third of the nitrogen that we're getting, though, is, is free because it's nitrogen that's left over after the corn is planted and, and you know, isn't used by that following soybean crop and most likely would all also be lost as the water would move through the, uh, the soil profile and take it out. So we're getting some of it free in that kind of sense because it would otherwise be lost. But we are taking nutrients out, but you know, we're producing a crop with, with revenue on it and you know, it, it definitely pays for the fertilizer. Yeah, so interesting. You ever get any cover crop purists that say, oh, if you're harvesting, it's not a cover crop. <laughs> that is the definition for some people, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it as a crop that covers. You know, what we have found is that farmers that are using cover crops are the most interested customers we have yep. because for them, at first, this is simply a better cover crop for them. It's a cover crop that instead of paying $30, $40 an acre for the long-term benefit of improving their soil, they're going to earn that and more while they're covering their soil. So right. it's a beautiful fit, you know, in that geography where, where we work south of I-80. 
Yeah, I, I've interviewed a professor from North Dakota State University about Camelina, kind of a, a similar approach with, yeah. with, with Camelina. And I know one of their problems has been markets. And this, this is the problem you're trying to solve before it's even commercially available. How has that process been as far as a processor's willingness to consider a new seed to crush? Well, most people are interested in new business. So I think they always start with that opportunistic kind of mindset. What has made this really interesting is the fact that there is a lot of interest in these low carbon intensity feedstocks and and not every feedstock can fit that where we have a unique opportunity to really fit that. That's probably drove their interest more than anything else. But look, we, we're a small seed. We're, we're different than what they're crushing today. So it does require us and them to think through how do you modify what you have today to make it work. So we're, you know, we've been in discussions with a number of them. We're not harvesting our first crop until the, the spring of 22 because we're planting in the fall of 21. So there's more time between now and then. And, you know, we look forward to jointly working through those challenges. We don't want to minimize it. Whenever you're doing something new, it requires some changes and you have to do it efficiently. So we welcome their help in solving that problem. Great. And as you roll this out, will it be pretty geographically focused around where a processor is that's willing to, you know, take the seed and process it? Well, you know, first we're, we want to focus where it's going to agronomically be best. And that's yeah. that south of I-80. We've done the most work in Illinois, and that's really a function of, well, first of all, Illinois has a great environment, but we're in St. Louis. So it's a quick hop across the bridge and we're in Illinois. So we've also done some work in Missouri. We will organize it around our collection locations. And then, you know, probably ultimately, you know, we'll have many more collection locations than we have processing plants because it'll make sense to have scale at a, at a particular processing plant. But we're, you know, we'll, we'll organize it around logical collections so we can have efficient delivery from the field to the collection point. Yeah. Yeah, and I know you're, the, the low-hanging fruit here are people who are already planting cover crops, but I think once you put some dollar signs in front of it, it also may lead to more widespread adoption of cover crops. In the area you're looking at, do you have any data as far as how many farmers are using cover crops and what the potential growth opportunity for cover crops in general is? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I can't pin it down to the exact area, but I, I think you know that the cover crop use is, is probably in that 5 to 10% of the total land. And I think your your point is exactly right. Those people are the best first people to try it. One, they're already experienced with all the, the tricks of doing fall planting in the Midwest. And a lot of them have the equipment to properly plant. So they're, they're the people that, you know, we're going to be working with first. But our belief is that once we prove this, that there's going to be many more farmers that are interested in taking part of their land and getting a third crop on it while protecting it. Because we're breaking that paradigm that exists today that a cover crop is only a long-term investment. We want it to be a long-term return and a short-term return. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I mean, I could definitely see where the payoff would be huge, but do you ever talk to an investor early on or where you were actually an investor early on and, and think like, okay, we're still trying, we're trying <laughs> to develop a, yeah, we're trying to develop a new crop here and a new market. And for some of these farmers, a time of year where they wouldn't even plant a crop. So there's a lot of paradigm shifts here. What makes you confident that 
you know, we're going we're gonna to get through all those. Well, it, those are all really excellent questions. Rather than saying what makes me confident, I'll tell you, I'll tell you why, what we've done and why I believe this is going to work. We've approached this from the very beginning that we're not the kind of company that is going to have all the answers in three years. This is going to take time because we need seasons in the field to learn and then reapply that learning in the following year. And we've taken a very conservative approach to how we have used our capital. We've 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 raised now fourteen million dollars, you know, since our beginning in first capital was raised in 2014. So we've we've tried to take a very cautious approach to capital, knowing that we needed seasons and time. And then secondly, we are very blessed here in St. Louis that we're able to tap into people who, like myself, had a very good career but are still pretty young. They're eager to take on something really interesting and paradigm shifting. And that's been true in the plant science side and breeding where you know a number of us have formerly uh, worked at Monsanto, had great careers and are living here. And also some grain handling companies and expertise because there's a lot of that in the Midwest so we've been able to pick up on people that already have 30 years of experience of doing a number of these things. And that has given us a tremendous head start in trying to tackle all of the challenges that you described. But I, I don't want to minimize it. I mean, one of the biggest challenges in being a startup in a company where you're making a new crop, where you're not only doing all the breeding things, you're also building a value chain and you're building end use, is that you have to know what you don't know. And every day, there might be another thing that you learn that you know that you don't know, and you have to be very humble and open. And we've been fortunate to have investors that have been fairly patient with that same kind of approach. Yeah, and I think this stems from from your experience because it's a very thoughtful approach. It would be, I'm not going to say easy, but it would be easier to develop the cover crop and say, hey, here's a better cover crop, and we think you could sell it and release it to farmers and when they come back to you and say, yeah, that was good, but I can't sell it. Be like, oh, well, yeah, someone should, someone should work on that, right? That would be easier. Yeah, it would be easier just to do part of the chain rather than the whole chain. Right, yes. but it probably wouldn't be in the end. It, it, it is not done with farmers in mind. And the way you all are executing mm-hmm. this is thinking about what's the farmer experience from end to end. That's right. I mean, that, you know, we've heard stories of new crops. Matter of fact, hemp is probably one of those that farmers talk about as much. You know, all the emphasis on getting a plant to grow and then you grow the crop and the market is uncertain by the time you get to the other end. That's not a very sustainable kind of story. It's not the kind of the one that we want right here. That's why we've been trying to do all of it in concert. It has meant, though, that our investors have to be patient because we're, you know, we're six, seven years into it and we're talking about starting to be commercial in a, in a, in a couple of years. So, but that's the reality when you're developing this kind of business opportunity is that it does take time. Okay. Well, t- talk to us more about your team. As I understand it, you kind of have assembled a team of other people who have had quite a bit of experience as well. How has that been in building a startup culture with people who maybe are more used to a corporate culture? It's <laughs> a great question. I'll break our team into a, a couple of pieces now. The early team was mostly people who had already had a career, were experienced, and the beauty of those, I think, there's a little bit of self-selecting where you might think, wow, you know, you're kind of company, you're used to having a lot of people around you to help you do everything. You get into a startup and you need, you need to do everything, including make coffee. And all of that's true. But I think the people who are willing to strap on and take on this challenge are kind of already mentally in the place of, I'm going to go ahead and do that and I'm going to enjoy it. 
I don't know where it takes me. I'm just going to enjoy it and learning all kinds of new things. Uh, So our early phase had mostly those people. As time has gone on, we've been able to hire people who've come through the St. Louis Community College in a biotechnology program, which is located in an adjacent building where we do a bunch of our research. Many times they have come in as interns. That's been a fabulous experience. And for, for lots of these people, this is their first job and or first job post-college. And that's also really fun to see these young, energetic people come into the workforce. Now we've picked up some other people, largely people that we've kind of met via our collaborations with universities. We, we have powerful collaborations, code, co-development agreements with three or more universities. And that's enabled us to meet some fabulous scientists that now work for us. So hmm. we've kind of, you know, now now we're at over 20 people. So they're kind of different sources at, at different times. And, you know, it's it's energizing to work with, with people that are passionate about what they're doing. And and the community college, so is that a two-year biotechnology program? Some of them have a two-year program and some of them are in a longer program, but yes. And, you know, they, they do a wide variety of work from, I'd say, more horticulture related to being our core gene editing team. That is fascinating. This is cool too, because some of the people that, you know, have had a long career in science and mostly in industry-based science at Monsanto, my former employer, are, you know, come in and get the benefit of teaching people who've got the foundation at the university, but who've never worked in a company in more of an industrial setting rather than, you know, a smaller scale university setting. And I think later in your career, kind of teaching others is a fun thing to do and they've enjoyed doing it. Right. And what an excellent career launch point. I mean, a two-year program from studying from people like that and going right into a job at a place like Covercrest, boy, you're not going to find a better return on investment in college anywhere I can think of. Well, and I can tell you this from what our employees see too, is that being in a small company, you get visibility into management and decision-making because you're so close to it all that if you're you're in a larger company, you never see for another 10 years. So, it, you know, I think they, they get tremendous development out of this. And of course, they, they bring a lot to it and they have to do a much wider variety of things than you, you would you know, have to be able to do in another place because we're small and everybody has to do something. And some, yeah. sometimes it's grunt work. <laughs> it's okay. We all have to do it. And it's fun. There's nothing wrong with it. Well, Jerry, I really appreciate all this. This has been fun for me. Anything that we didn't get to that you think is an important part of the story here before we wrap up? I think you've covered it very well. So I didn't know what coming out of a career in a big company, what it would be like in a startup. And I I worried that, you know, not having any startup experience would be a real challenge for me. And what I learned is that there are lots of people out there that teach me every day how to do things from our investors to organizations like the Biogenerator here in St. Louis. So there are lots of people out there that have taught me every step of the way and they're willing to because I'd say uh, the whole community here in St. Louis is really working hard to get startups to be important and be a big part of the scene. And it's fun to be part of. Thanks again so much to Jerry Steiner for being on the show to share the story of Covercrest. That concept just crosses over so many interesting trends for the future of agriculture. I'm really rooting for their success, and it was fun to have them on the show. Also, thanks to Fulcrum Global Capital for partnering with me on this episode, and congratulations to them. Big shout out to them for having two portfolio companies make it into the finals of the Samsung Extreme Tech Challenge. 
Out of over 2,400 companies, Microgen and Green Dot Bioplastics were both finalists in their category, with Microgen actually winning for ag tech. We hope to get both of those companies on a future episode and we can get the Fulcrum guys back on to share their perspective on them. So stay tuned. Make sure you're subscribed and hope to be bringing that to you very soon. In the meantime, go learn more about Fulcrum over at www.fgcvc.com for Fulcrum Global Capital Venture Capital.com. I really appreciate your time and attention, especially those of you who have reached out over various channels to let me know you're finding value in the show. That is always very much appreciated. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Music.